Today, I'm gonna be in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. We're starting a new series today, uh, as as James said. Now, um, when I was 12 years old, I broke my arm, my right arm at the wrist. And that meant that I had to miss most of my 12-year-old baseball season in Little League, which was my last season of real organized baseball. That was a bummer. I had to wear a cast from my from my wrist to my elbow, and it got itchy. But on the good side, it, it gave me a, an overhand serve in volleyball that nobody at Yoakum Junior High could return. So for six weeks, I was the king of the volleyball court. But when my mom took me to get that cast sawed off, uh, we went into the doctor's office, and I remember sitting there in the waiting room, and there was a man there who was older, uh, and he was sitting there looking at me in my cast, and he said, what are you here for today? And I said, well, I'm, I'm here to get this cast sawed off. And he said, ooh, well, that's pretty dangerous. You better be careful, because, you know, if, if you flinch or if you move at all, they could actually cut you. That's a, that's a real dangerous operation. And he, he was wearing shorts, and he pointed to his knee, to what I now, in my adult form, know was a knee surgery scar. It was about that long and ugly. And uh, he said, see what they did to me? (laughs) And my mom's sitting there thinking, okay, my son's smart enough to know he's being teased, but I wasn't. And so we went into the the examining room and and here comes that little saw, and it's sawing away at this cast. And I felt the tiniest bit of contact with my forearm and I hit the ceiling. And and the, the nurse said, oh, are you afraid of this saw? Don't worry. And she literally did it up and down her hand and nothing happened. And I felt like a fool. And my mom was like, I thought you knew that stupid guy was just teasing you. Now, I say that because we live in a world that where that guy's always talking to us. He was joking. The world is not. Every time you watch the news, every time you watch one of the shows about the news, uh, every time you turn on social media, every time you talk to your friends, nearly every time, they're telling you some reason why you should be worried, some reason why you should be afraid. You know, one of the things I've noticed, the generation of my kids, so Generation Z or whatever you call that, uh, is a fantastic generation. I think they're going to do great things in this world. I think there's going to be revival in that generation. But one of the things they're dealing with that my generation didn't have to deal with, and yours probably didn't either, is an epidemic of anxiety. If you know a young person today, somebody uh, in their mid-20s or below, they probably have to deal with constant anxiety. And that's something that we don't understand. We didn't have to deal with, but I think it's our fault. Not only did we bring smartphones into the world, which is part of what's causing this, but our fear is filtering down to them. They're learning from the cradle, from the cradle, from the cradle that this is a scary world and, and that you should be afraid. And I'll give you an example. In 1975, uh, there was a, a uh, sociologist, Roger Hart, uh, who did research on the, the play patterns of children. He wanted to know how do kids spend their time, their free time, when they're not in school, not, not with their parents. And so he went to this little town in Vermont, got permission to track every kid there under the age of 12. What he discovered after he'd been with them for a few months was starting at the age of five or six, some of them as early as four, kids would walk out of their house. This is 1975. They'd walk out their front door. Their parents wouldn't see them until that evening. They would explore the town, sometimes with groups of other kids their age, sometimes all by themselves. They'd go down alleys. They'd go into stores. They'd walk through parking lots and down streets. By the time the average kid in that town was 10, they had covered every square inch of that city by themselves. So he came back in 2015, so that's 40 years later. And he wanted to know, have things changed? Are these kid, those kids 
children and grandchildren any different. And he found out they're, they're, they were very different. He found that the average child in that town, if, if you wanted to track them, it was very easy. You just stood in their front yard. They never got past the boundary of their family's property. In fact, most of them rarely ever came outside. And if they did come outside, they were right there under the gaze of their parents. And he said the interesting thing is the, the crime rate in that city had not gone up one bit in 40 years. There were no stories locally of child molesters or child abductions or any kind of scary stuff happening, but the adults there were convinced those things were true. And he said, you think about the fear that kids today feel, it's because 40 years ago they would have been out solving problems, they would have been out making friends, they would have been out figuring out how to, how to work together as a team with other people their age, but now they're inside their house looking at a screen. And we wonder why we're so afraid. So when we surround ourselves with fear in a culture, it does have a way of changing us in some pretty terrible ways. I mean, just on a basic level, the reason you can't get your aspirin bottle open is because of fear. The reason why it, you have to get to the airport three hours ahead of time is because of fear, because we've decided there's a bad guy in every crowd. Uh, the reason why we have high blood pressure and insomnia, the reason why we're so isolated from others and therefore so lonely and so suspicious is because of fear. It takes away our joy and our love that we're supposed to express to the world. I'm willing to bet, if I were a betting man, that everybody here has something they're fearful of right now. And I don't say that in a, in a critical or condemning way. For some of you, it's a low-grade fear that you're just functioning. You just wish that was out of your life so you wouldn't have to worry about it. For others of it, it's absolutely debilitating. It's taken over your life. So we're, we're starting this series today knowing that fear is a big problem for us. Knowing that one of the most frequent commands in the Bible is fear not. Don't be afraid. So what does that really mean? How can we change what we feel? How can we change the way we respond to fearful circumstances? And what about the command in Scripture that says, fear God? How does that work into this equation? What are we supposed to do with the command of God? How do we follow it? So we're going to start today by looking at how the, the resurrection makes the ultimate difference. Because Christ is risen, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to let fear rule. So let's start right there in John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. You hear that? They were, in the, they were locked up for the fear, and Jesus said, Peace. We'll come back to that. When He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not one of them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, How Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen 
and yet have believed. So I want to talk to you about the real problem with fear and the only solution to fear. Those are your two points today. The real problem with fear isn't what you think. A lot of people think that the problem with fear is that it means we don't trust God and that makes God angry. And God is upset with us and he's disappointed in us and his feelings are hurt because we don't trust him. And it is true that if we knew how good God was, if we could feel his presence all the time and if we were aware of how much he loved us and how powerful he is, we would worry less. We would not be as afraid, but we still would face moments of fear. And I'll show you what I mean by that. There's a lot of really good Christians I know who are beating themselves up because they think that God is offended at their own worry and fear. What I'm here to tell you, you cannot help the emotions you feel. The question is, what do you do with those emotions? See, here's, here's Jesus in the upper room. The, the disciples are in there locked away, knowing that any moment the Sanhedrin could send the temple guard to kick in their doors and drag them before the Romans or stone them to death in the streets. And suddenly Jesus is standing in their midst. Now, I don't know this. The text doesn't say this. But I believe that when Jesus said, peace be with you, he might as well have said, boo! Because they didn't think that he was going to be there. No, the door didn't open or close. Just suddenly there he was. And I imagine them hitting the ceiling like I did in that doctor's office. But Jesus says, peace be with you. He doesn't say, what's the matter with you guys? How come, how come you're, you're in this locked room? Are you afraid? What are you, scared? He doesn't make fun of them. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't say, don't you remember I said I was going to rise again? He doesn't even say, like I would, why didn't you believe Mary Magdalene this morning when she told you she saw me? Instead, he says, peace be with you. I think when God looks on us and we're fearful, it's the same way we would look on our three-year-old who's scared of the dark. We understand. Now we might, we might say, come on, buddy. Can't, haven't you outgrown this yet? And there are times in the Bible where Jesus says, hey, where is your faith? But that's not a condemnation. That is, at worst, gentle rebuke. That's, I'm hoping you grow beyond this sometime. But the problem with fear is not that it offends God. The problem with fear is what we do with it. And I'll give you another example of what I'm talking about. Three days earlier, Jesus is flat on his face in an olive grove called the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying to God, Lord, don't let this happen. Take this cup away from me. He is under so much pressure. He is feeling so much anxiety. He is literally sweating blood. The, the strain of the moment has caused capillaries under his skin to burst, and he is sweating blood. Jesus is afraid. There's no other way to characterize that moment. Has Jesus sinned by being afraid? Absolutely not. But what does Jesus say? He says, Lord, not your will, but mine be done. I mean, not my will, but yours be done. What it, sh what it shows us is it's not a sin to be afraid. It's a sin to let fear rule you. The problem with fear is it keeps us from doing the will of God. It steals our joy. It causes us to be selfish. It causes us to be self-protective the question is not, are you going to be afraid? The question is, what are you going to do the next time you're afraid? Will you let it stop you from doing the will of God, whatever it is in your life? Will you allow worry to make you selfish in your decision making? So every decision you make is about keeping yourself safe. Will you be so fearful of the worst case scenario that you fail to take any kind of risks for the sake of God, for the sake of your own growth, for the sake of others? Will you be so suspicious of people who don't look like you or think like you, you never really fulfill the command of God to love your neighbor? 
Think again about those disciples. Sitting in that room, I guarantee you every one of them was thinking the same thing. You know, I probably ought to get out of here. I probably ought to wait until after dark and, and sneak away when all the other uh, 10 disciples are asleep. I'm just going to sneak away and head back to Galilee because if I'm discovered with them, people will know that I'm one of those Jesus people and I'll get killed. But if I can just get back to Galilee. And yet, none of them did. You know why? Because Jesus had told them, stay and wait. He had prepared them. You're going to take over from me after I'm gone. They didn't know what was coming next. They didn't know what to wait for. They were just told to wait. So in spite of their fear, the disciples were doing the will of God as best they knew how. And that's why Jesus didn't condemn them. They were doing the best they knew to do. And that's what God asks of us. How can we do that? The next time we're afraid, how can we stop ourselves? I believe that aside from pride, the thing that causes more sin than anything else isn't the devil and it isn't the world. It is our fear. So how do we keep fear from stopping us from doing the will of God? and experiencing his best. And that brings me to the second point. What is the only solution to fear? Again, it's not what you think. It is faith, and you might say, oh, well, I knew that. I could have gotten that. But faith is not what you've been told by a lot of preaching today. So think about, again, what Jesus said to them. He said, peace be with you. He said it three times in this passage. Peace be with you. Now, in Hebrew, the word peace is shalom. You might know that. Uh, you might also know that in Israel or any place where Hebrew is spoken, that's how people greet each other. They don't say hello. They don't say, how's it going? They say, shalom, shalom, shalom. For Jesus, it wasn't just a greeting. It was his life's work. Because you see, peace, the way we use it in English, it has one meaning, but shalom has a very different and much more exciting meaning. Peace for us just means, oh, the kid next door turned off his stereo. Thank God. Peace just means, oh, you know, my, my wife just left and so we don't have to have that same argument, right? But shalom means something different. Shalom means when things are put together the way they should be. So to give you an example of the difference, if you had three guys living together in an apartment and two of them suddenly just got at odds with each other and every day they were fighting and cussing and yelling at each other and the third one comes and says, listen, if I don't get some peace around here, I'm going to move back home with my parents. And the other two say, okay, we need to keep our fighting on the down low when he's around because we can't afford this apartment, just the two of us. That's the world's version of peace. Shalom is when those two get together and say, let's work this out. You, I confess, here's all the things I've done to you. Um, and the other guy says, yeah, you're right. Here's what I've done to you. And they shake hands and they make it right. That's shalom. Or another example is if you break your arm and you can't sleep at night because of the pain and somebody gives you some pain medicine, you get some peace and you're able to fall asleep. But shalom is when that bone knits itself back together by the power of God and you're healed. Jesus is saying, I want shalom for you. You're afraid and I want everything to be right. Jesus was the Prince of Peace. He was the Prince of Shalom. He came into the world to bring that to everyone who, who believed in him. And those who followed him had shalom in their lives. And you might say, how can that be? I know some history, Jeff, and I know that for the next 300 years, Christians were the scum of the earth. They were the bottom of society. They had no rights at all. They had no money. They had no resources. And yet, when you read the book of Acts, read the book of Acts sometimes, because that tells the story of what happened to those people right after this. You don't feel sorry for them. You think to yourself, I want to go back then. I want to be one of them. 
I want to experience what they experienced. Because here's the disciples not just feeling shalom in their hearts, taking it with them wherever they, get, wherever they went. Because those men had the power given by Jesus to heal people and raise people from the dead. You think that wouldn't have been exciting? And then succeeding generations didn't have that power on a constant basis like the apostles did, but they went, they did the next best thing. They just said, okay, Roman families are leaving their babies, their female babies out to die because families don't want little girls. So we'll go adopt those little girls and we'll bring them into our Christian homes and raise them up as our own. And there's been an epidemic and everybody's headed for the hills. We're going to stick around and we're going to just do our best to nurse these people. We don't know how diseases are caused, but we'll do our best. And, uh, and then later on, there was a little medical knowledge that occurred and, and, and Christians formed the first hospitals. Not only that, but the disciples started preaching the gospel to people who didn't look like them. First, the Samaritans, which was quite a bridge to cross because they were half Jewish. But then Philip changed everything when he preached the gospel to a man from Ethiopia who didn't even look like him. And then all that was the cat was out of the bag. I mean, after that, Peter and Paul head out into the separate directions, and Paul goes up north and he heads to Gentile areas and, and modern day Europe. And, and, and then Along the way, succeeding generations realize we're starting to reach people who can't read the Bible for themselves because not only do they not read Greek, they don't have a written language of their own, so we need to teach them their own language. We need to create alphabets for them. We need to teach them how to read in those alphabets. By the way, did you know the, the, the alphabet of the Russian people? That's just one example. Cyrillic has its name because St. Cyril, a Christian monk, invented their language, invented their written uh, alphabet. This happened all over the world. And then it got to be, well, these people can't read. Let's start schools. You want to know where public education came from? The idea that we need a place where everybody, not just the rich and not just men, everybody should come and learn to read so they can read the Word of God, so they can function in the world. That came from church. If you value education, if you value modern science, if you value medical care, if you value racial equality, all of those and a lot of other things we take for granted came from these people who took shalom with them wherever they went. And you might say, well, that's great, Jeff, but what does that have to do with the thing I'm worried about? I've got this doctor's appointment in a couple of weeks. I don't know what he's going to say. I've got this friend, uh, this loved one, my spouse, my child, who has this diagnosis that is terrifying to me. I, I've got this uh, appointment with my boss, and he might tell me I'm going to be fired. What, what does that have to do with me? And I just say, look at Thomas. Let's look again at Thomas. There's actually two other stories in which Thomas is the main character in the Bible. One is in chapter 11 of John when Jesus is going to Bethany and the disciples say, but Lord, they want to kill you there. And Thomas looks at him and goes, we might as well go and die too. That's literally what he says. Let's go and die with him because if he dies, every, everything we've put our hopes in is gone anyway. And then in chapter 14, you know, John 14, 6 is one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. Well, it's an answer to a question by John. Because Jesus has just said, this is Thursday night before Good Friday, Jesus has just said, I'm going away, and you know where I'm going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? He's essentially saying, Jesus, I trust you, but give me a roadmap. I want to know some instructions. I want to know some details. And Jesus says, I am the way, Thomas, and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what you have in Thomas is an extremely practical human being who wants details. He doesn't want to fly by the seat of his pants. He doesn't want to trust someone else. And so it's not surprising 
that when he comes back on Easter Sunday evening and the disciples all say, we've seen Jesus, he's alive, that Thomas says, um, I'm going to need some proof of that. I mean, I love you guys, but I've been with you for three years. I've seen how many times you've been wrong. I'm not going to get my hopes up just based on what you say happened. Thomas was one of those believe none of what you hear and only half of what you see kind of people. And then Jesus shows up. And what happens? Does Jesus say, what's the matter with you? What is wrong with you? How dare you doubt? No, he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, here, you want to put your fingers right here? The wound's still fresh. You can, you can insert your finger right here. Lifts up his shirt and says, you see my wound? That's real. You want to touch it? It happened. What is Jesus doing? He's not condemning. He's reassuring. He's giving him proof. He is taking away his doubt. He is taking away his fear. And then he says this, and this is the verse I want you to, to keep with you for the rest of the week. Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now we say the word bless basically when someone sneezes, right? Otherwise, we don't really know what that word means. I hope you'll listen to this. I hope you understand what I mean when I say this. But in the ancient world, in, in, in Jesus' world, the word blessed was what lucky means today. And I don't mean a superstitious sense. I mean, if you knew someone who uh, bought a pair of pants at JCPenney and found a $100 bill in that, you'd say, oh, you lucky guy. Actually, you might say you lucky something else, but that's your business. And what you mean by that is, I wish I was you right now. I wish I had what you had. That's what blessed means. The people who have what everybody else has are the people who believe and have not yet seen. The truly blessed people are not the ones with the most money or the straightest teeth or, or the prettiest uh, face or, or, or the best job. The, the truly blessed people are the ones who are able to look at Jesus and say, I don't know what's, ha I don't know what's happening right now. I don't know why it's happening. I don't know what's going to come tomorrow, but I know you're in charge and I trust you. I haven't seen it yet, but I know you know, so I trust you. That's true blessing. Faith is the solution to fear, but faith isn't what you've been told. Because we've been told by a lot of popular preachers today, I'm not going to name any names, but you know who I'm talking about, that what real faith is, is telling God what you want, and then He has to give it to you. Because of the strength of your belief. Because you believe so strongly, God can't tell you no. When I was in college, I was part of the Baptist Student Union, which was a great move. I, I got to know a lot of great people, grew in Christ. It made a tremendous difference in my life. Um, there was a, a girl in the BSU who was very, very beautiful, and she was extremely godly, and, and she was very, very sweet. And so a lot of guys had their eyes on her. Even guys with girlfriends were like, hmm. And there were several guys in the BSU, I'm not making this up or, or exaggerating, several guys, not one or two, several, who literally said to her, I believe God has told me that you're to be my wife. <laughs> Which is a heck of a pickup line, you know, and... and and I really liked her too, but I didn't have that kind of, I didn't think I'd heard from the Lord. I was just like, I'd like to take her to the movies, you know? Um, and I'm glad that that's not what faith is. Because if that's what faith is, any one of those guys would be married to her today because God would have said, oh, you want that? Okay, you have enough faith. There you go. But instead she married me. So... <laughs> I'm not going to tell you which movie we saw, but yeah... Yeah. The reason I tell you that is 
those original followers of Jesus, I am sure they and the next subsequent generations for the next 300 years, I'm sure many times they prayed, Lord, could, could you get some of this persecution off our backs? Could you take away some of this pressure we're under? Lord, could you give us more resources so we don't have to scrape out an existence? Could you make it easier on us? And it, for the most part, rarely happened. But I guarantee you, if you meet those people in heaven someday, and you say, man, sure admire you for all you went through for the cause of Christ, I guarantee you they're going to say, oh, it was worth it. In fact, looking down from heaven watching you live in all that prosperity and affluence and, and, and pampered lifestyle you had, I wouldn't trade what I had for what you had because all we had was Jesus. And then we knew what was really special, what was really important. We had real joy. We had real love. We had real peace. You know, sometimes God worked miracles for us and sometimes He did things we couldn't imagine, but every single time we prayed, He always answered our prayers the way we would have prayed them if we'd known what He knows. And so we're glad we trusted Him. And that's the point you and I need to get to. Again, it doesn't mean that if we trust God enough, we'll never be afraid because Jesus trusted God perfectly. And yet in the garden, he knew, I'm about to face hell on earth. And he felt fear. But he did what was right. Fear didn't rule him, not once. You and I live in a world that's like that man in the doctor's office when I was a kid. It's constantly filling our heads with fear. And we look at Jesus and say, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? When are you going to take this pressure off of me? When are you going to at least give me a roadmap and make it make sense? And he just smiles and says, blessed are those who believe without having seen. That's where you need to get to. Just trust me, he says. And I'm, I'm working all these things together for good for those who love me. Just trust me. And I can teach you to overwhelm your fears with shalom. There's a saying I read a long time ago and it stuck with me. If you feed your faith, your fears will starve to death. The more you feed your faith, the less you will be afraid. The less fear will rule you. The more you listen to Him, the more you listen to Him, the less you can hear that guy in the doctor's office yammering away. And even when sometimes that voice of fear sneaks in, you just say to Jesus, I don't know how this is going to turn out. You know how I want it to turn out, and I know you have the power to do that if it's in your will. All I know is whether, I, whether you give me a miracle or not, I'm going to do your will. That's my goal. That's my hope. Lord, bless me with the things that I ask for, but if not, either way, give me strength to do what is right. Don't let fear rule me. Don't let fear steer me into the wrong direction. Don't let fear dictate my actions. I want to be led by you and you alone. Now, right now, some of you are struggling with some area of, of your life where there is some intense fear, some intense worry. And what I'm asking you to do as we bow our heads and close our eyes is just take that to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to follow you in this.